Okay, let's jump into things this evening. So go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That's where we're going to be this evening, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are moving through our core values as a church, and well, I say this every week, but one of the reasons why we're doing these core values is we're really deciding what are the pillars, the foundation that we're building this church upon. It's important for you to know whether you have already said, I'm all in, I'm calling Saints Hill home, or you're still trying to make that decision. Um, you need to know what we are about. So... Um, what we're going to be talking about tonight is really, really important. It's probably out of all of the values, the one I'm approaching with the most reverence, um, the most fear of God within me. Um, a couple days ago, I um, asked the Lord just like, what, you know, kind of took a pause. What do you think about Saints Hill? What do you think about our church? What are you saying about uh, the community that we're developing here? And, um, and I really, I, I don't say this often. If you've been here for the past few weeks, you know that this isn't something I say very often but I really do believe that God spoke to me in that moment and he said, um, this value in particular is going to spark a complete change in Newberg's understanding of God's love for them. Um, I, I, just, I just almost saw people waking up on Monday morning, whether they were here or not, most of the town's not here, waking up and going, something's different. I, I don't know what it is, but there's something about the atmosphere that just shifted. Um, so let's read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. It says this. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Our value this evening is we are the righteousness of God. And if there was ever a value that I have any fear about giving, to, this is the value tonight. Uh, a couple of years ago, um, I gave a message kind of similar to the one that I'm going to give this evening at Bridgetown. And um, I, I had a guy come up to me and he, and he said afterwards, it was kind of like a, a little bit of a rebuke. He said, hey, listen, I don't think it's very nice for you to say that Jesus was cursed so that we could not be cursed. That's, that's just messed up, man. You can't put Jesus under the bus like that. And I said, well, Okay, I understand that it's all for reverence for Christ, but did you know that in Galatians chapter three, verse 13, it says that he became a curse so that we wouldn't be cursed any longer. And he's like, yeah, still, man, I just don't think it's right to say that Jesus was cursed. Why? Why did he have that reaction? Because 
The gospel is so good that it can actually offend some to really believe it in its entirety. I I think that for um, many Christians, there was a sense at some point in your life where the unstoppable, overwhelming love of God saved you, and you really sensed it. But I have found that for many of followers of Jesus, they do not live with a deep conscious awareness of his love to the point that they live every single day in victory. Which is exactly what the good news is meant to do in someone's life. Could could it be that we have maybe downgraded what is good news to simply just being okay news? Guys, the the Bible is crazy. I I don't know if you know this, but here's what it says about your new status as somebody who is in Christ. Just a few verses I pulled out. Um, it, It says in John chapter 20, verse 23, that we get to forgive people. So there's actually this passage where it says, anybody that you forgive, as far as heaven is concerned, they're forgiven. Anybody that you withhold forgiveness from, as far as heaven is concerned, they're not forgiven. Awkward. Uh, there's another passage where it says whatever you loose or whatever you set free through your life on earth, it's loosed. Whatever you choose to bind up and hold, it's bound up and held back. What kind of authority is that? In John 15, 7, Jesus says, hey, ask God for whatever you want. Most of us are like, well, I don't want to ask him for that because, you know, he's not like a, you know, a, a cosmic vending machine. And that kind of makes it say, well, Jesus didn't say, he just said, ask him for whatever you want. That's interesting. Um, Psalm 25, verse 14, it says, the secrets of God are for those who he calls his friends. Did you know that? So get this, God has secrets, and he's like, I'm not gonna tell these to just anybody, I'm gonna tell these to people who are my friends. Wow. Um, We actually, did you know that in Exodus 30, we see an example of someone changing God's mind. God sets out on a course to do something, And someone comes in and says, I don't think you should do that. And it says that God in Hebrew literally says he repents. Now there's a little bit of awkwardness in this room right now. Because if we take this kind of privilege seriously, what could that mean? I think that for some of us, we have potentially disqualified ourselves for something that he's qualified us for. You see, the religious heart is unable to admit that we really have been made in his image and that when we were born again, we really were made absolutely, completely pure because the religious person still lives in a world where their actions have a greater impact on their righteousness than his actions. And unfortunately, many, many people have their conception of righteousness defined this way. You do good things and you're righteous because you did good things and your actions define who you are. You do bad things and you're wicked. Why? Because your actions define who you are. Now, at a distance, it could appear very humble, right? Little old me, I'm not righteous. Oh, gosh, But really, this is an incredibly deadly place to be as a follower of Jesus because it ignores what Christ has done for us by failing to take hold of the benefits of what being in Christ means. 
You reflect what you believe about the gospel by the level of power you are comfortable stewarding in your life. Maybe I'll try over here. You reflect what you believe about the gospel by the level of power you are comfortable stewarding in your life. I remember uh, a couple years ago, um, I had this really big, massive shift in my life where I really got a hold of this truth that we're talking about tonight. And the Lord began this whole shift in my life by just saying this. He said, you know, Alex, you have gone to seminary. You've studied the culture around you. You've studied the ancient culture of the Bible. You've even dabbled in original languages. But have you gone to the same degree to study my love for you? I'm like, no, I haven't. See, oftentimes we think that the hard part of the Christian life is reading our Bible and learning about it and pouring ourselves out at church. That is not the hard part of the Christian life. The hard part of the Christian life is having the ability to receive the beyond reasonable love that God has for you. Can you receive it? So tonight, here's what we need to do. We need to meditate again anew on a biblical theology of salvation. Genesis 1 teaches us this. It teaches us that God defines everything. He defines what's good for humans. He defines what isn't good for humans. But in Genesis chapter 3, we see that humans take that role from God. And what do they do? They define that the fruit in front of them is actually good, regardless of how God defined it. Interesting. Now, um, in theology, some theology students out there, you probably know this, there's this rule of first mention. And the rule of first mention goes like this. The first time something's mentioned in the Bible, there's an authority to define that thing. So think about this. The first time sin is ever mentioned in the Bible, what is it? What was the sin? The first sin was agreement with the enemy instead of agreement with the Father. So what is sin? It's I'll believe what is being told to me over here rather than believe what's being told to me here. Interesting. And the reason why sin is so harmful is that it second guesses the goodness of God. Does God really know best for me? Every sin. You want to trace, just look at your life and you see anytime you sin, you go, I could probably trace it back to a moment where I didn't believe that God had his, my best interest in mind and so I made a decision out of that fear. Sin second guesses the goodness of God and thus his design. And so it teaches your heart about your value and your worth. Sin can become an identity. Remember, Adam and Eve, their actions moved them to hide. There was this belief, um, this is good. God doesn't know what's good for me. There was an action. I'm gonna take and I'm gonna eat. And then there was an identity. We're ashamed and so we're gonna hide. And this identity is what all humanity inherits through Adam. Everybody is born into this identity. Paul calls it the flesh. It's the baggage of thinking that we know better than God. That's the flesh. And the result of a life that is focused on the flesh, it says in the New Testament, is death. Not only the end result of your life being death for all humans, but it's disappointment through life. 
It's trying to satisfy yourself with things that pass away. It's a lack of purpose that is truly meaningful, not to mention alienation from your creator and thus the really good life that God has for you. It's death. But when someone turns to Jesus and believes that Jesus' work counts for them and trusts him, they receive his spirit and they begin life in the spirit. Look down at your Bibles, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. This exchange that took place um, where God doesn't count our sin against us, instead Jesus becomes our sin so that we can become his righteousness. Um, that's what happens when you turn and say, you know what, I don't, want, I don't want my choices to be what defines everything anymore. I'm coming to you now so that you can define what is right and good for my life. And we become his righteousness. Isn't that one of the most stunning phrases in all of the, the, the scriptures? Now, now, what does righteousness actually mean? It's kind of like a dirty word in our culture these days. Is it just somebody who does really good stuff? Well, no. The word righteous means right manner. It's a place of being correct to the very core, the way that you have been intended. So, so how do you get righteous? Um, well, he became sin so that we might become his righteousness, but how exactly does that happen? Well, um, Romans the book of Romans is just a theological tome of truth. One day, we'll do a Romans series. But um, until then, just a little bit of a Roman survey. Romans chapter four says this in verse one. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham what? Believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham wasn't justified through the good stuff that he did in his life. Instead, he was justified or made righteous through a simple decision to believe God's word over his own present circumstance. In another passage, it says, though his body was good as dead, he believed that God could bring a promise of children through his life. Now notice, what is this? This is the exact opposite of what Adam and Eve did. Isn't that interesting? Now, moving on to the next chapter, Romans 5 says this, just beautiful. For if by the trespass of the one man, Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Death reigns over everyone who isn't in Christ, but for those who receive. Isn't that interesting? For those who receive, not for those who serve a lot at church, not for those who wake up and read their Bible a ton, not for those who have all of the practices of Jesus nailed down. No, for those who receive. That word in Greek is lambano, and this is what it means, aggressively accepting. Isn't that interesting? For those who aggressively accept what? God's abundant grace and the free gift of righteousness, what will they do? They will reign in life. So when you look at your life, you're like, I don't know that somebody could describe me as reigning in life. Guess what? You may not, it's not that you haven't tried hard enough or you're just not that loving or you got this personality flaw that the Myers-Briggs brought up. No, it's not that. It's that maybe you haven't actually aggressively accepted the free gift of grace. Romans chapter six says this. 
We are those who have died to sin. How can we live it in, in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Verse seven says this, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin in the very same way. Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We're those who died to sin. How can we sin any longer? Either you're dead to sin or you're not. So how do you consider yourself this evening? Are you dead to sin? The important part for the believer is to believe this truth by considering. This is what the word is in Greek. Logi zomai. Can you say that with me? Logi zomai. And it's to reckon, to count, to charge with, to reason, decide, and conclude ourselves dead to sin. Have you reasoned, decided, and concluded that you are dead to sin, no matter what you do? Have you? The pinnacle, Romans chapter 8 says this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So for those of you who are in Christ Jesus, can you be condemned for what you do? Seriously, I, guys, we need to take this seriously. For those of you who are in Christ Jesus, can you be condemned for what you do? No. It's not a trick question. It's right there. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So why do you walk around condemning yourself? Verse 32 of the same chapter says this. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? What this means is that the death of Jesus as payment to receive us to himself set a high water mark that the rest of our lives, God is interested in being that generous again and again and again. If he, did, if he gave his life, won't he give you all things? So, next slide. Our response to his work on the cross must be believing, receiving, and considering what is true theologically because of his sacrifice. This is how you choose to live life in the spirit as opposed to the flesh. This is good news. Some of you don't believe it yet. Let's read this next slide out loud together. I am righteous. I am dead to sin, a new creation, alive with the spirit, with a generous father. Nothing you can do can bring condemnation or distance between you and the Father. Do you believe that? So here's some practical implications. You have to stop thinking that you owe God. M many can conceive that God forgave them for what they did before they first came to Christ, but that somehow his grace doesn't cover future sin as well. 
Or, or some of us believe that um, we kind of owe God for his sacrifice. He did so much for me, and, and I just kind of want to pay him back. If you believe that, what do you do with a passage like this in Colossians? It says this, Jesus canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to a cross. That's pretty final, isn't it? What if you don't owe God? What if he doesn't really need anything from you? He just wants to pour himself out on you. What if that was the truth? Secondly, you must start receiving his love rather than self-punishing in order to feel better. That's religion. That's religion. A lot of what we call discipleship today is really just psychologically cathartic ways of getting over the feeling of shame. You know, confession is a beautiful thing so long as it includes the confession of being his righteousness. Your confession isn't a full and complete confession if you leave out the blood of Jesus covering you in that moment. Do you understand that you cannot be punished by God? Why is that? Because he already punished Jesus so completely that he's got no punishment left for you. I remember I was talking to Noah. I don't know where, he's somewhere in this room. I was talking to Noah, one of my buddies said, everything changed for me when I realized that Jesus' death was a complete death and that Jesus' resurrection was a complete resurrection. There's some of us in this room who don't actually believe that. Now, doesn't that seem a little reckless of God, though? How is he supposed to teach us lessons? How, how does he discipline us then? Uh, what if we lose humility and somehow we get puffed up? And pride. Well, I just want to ask you this. What if his kindness was meant to lead you to repentance? What if that? You see, some of us, we opt out of the benefits of salvation by simply believing that some of the good news is for us, but not all of it. And the reason behind this, if you're sitting there and you're going, I, I think that might be me, the reason why is shame. It's shame. See, shame is moving from I've done something or believe something wrong and I need to change my mind and my life direction to there's no hope for me. I am wrong. I don't know that I could ever come back from this. Shame steals our identity from us because we still believe that what we do has more of an effect on our spiritual status than what he's done. Peter Kreeft, a philosophy professor at Boston College, he says this, it is not because in order to be included in heaven's kingdom, sins must be honestly repented. Every sin meets its necessary fate, expulsion from the kingdom. And if we cling to the spiritual garbage, we will find ourselves in the universe's spiritual garbage dump. Bummer. God does not forgive sins. He forgives sinners and destroys sins. If the person does not identify himself with their sins, they are not destroyed. This non-identifying, this refusal is repentance. Non-identifying. 
See, we were designed, you sitting here tonight, were designed to be God's expression of royalty here on earth. And I think that shame is like royalty poison, causing us, the children of God, to not reach for what our Father has bought for us. Shame is super popular to talk about. I don't know if you've noticed that, but it's everybody's talking about shame these days because it's something that we can point to to explain the emotional and psychological damage that may have happened to us in the past. And I really think that this epidemic of shame that we're having, it's causing people to do everything from shrink back in insecurity to lash out in pride. But I, personally, don't actually believe that shame is a problem from us focusing too much on what people have done wrong. Here's why. People do stuff that's wrong all the time. And to find out that you've done something that's wrong could either be freedom for you or it could be a prison depending on where you find your value. Here's an example. If somebody comes up to me from the church and they say, you know what, Alex, you've been a bad leader because you haven't spent much time with this person over here, and I don't know if you know, but their feelings are really hurt that you haven't got, gotten lunch with them. Um, that can be very freeing for me to know so that I know, oh my God, there's a gap in my life that I want to shore up and fill so that I can be a better leader and perhaps even more equitable with my time. Or when they say that, it can crush me. But the only reason why that would crush me is if I'm comparing myself to that leader over there who happens to have time for everyone. Then I feel that the problem is, is, is a huge deal. It's not something that I can just uh, say, hey, you know, I'm sorry for that, and I'm going to try and do better in the future. There must be something wrong about me, and, and I'm just not enough like that leader over there. All of a sudden, my actions become my identity and shame sets in. But it wasn't because something wrong was pointed out. It was because before anyone said anything at all, I was using comparison to make myself feel better than others. And so when I was found out to be lacking in comparison to that leader over there, my identity crumbled and I was left with shame. This is why it is so, so, so important that we locate our worth and value in what he has done and stop comparing ourselves to each other and to begin receiving what he has for us. The road to following God's will always runs parallel to the pursuit of receiving from him. The road of God's will always runs parallel to the pursuit of receiving more from him. The call on our lives as followers of Jesus is great. We're to be the revelation of his royalty here on earth. So that when people want to know about God, they can look at you. That's why Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ because he, he knew in that moment. It wasn't pride, it's what everybody's supposed to say, be able to say. I'm receiving what Christ has done for me, and I want you to receive the same. So think about this. 
To put yourself down in an effort to be humble puts you at odds with God's desire for your life. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 says this. His intent, God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. Isn't that interesting? What does that passage mean? What it means is that God wants to show us off to the rulers and the principalities and the heavenly realms, to the angels and the heavenly hosts. He's like, you want to see my greatness, my manifold wisdom? Look at my church. Look at the people who follow me. Do you see yourself that way this evening? But what steals this position of glory that we were destined for is false humility. It's false humility. Bill Johnson, he says this. He says, living under yesterday's condemnation doesn't make me more humble. If anything, it keeps me focused on myself instead of on the Lord. It's much more difficult to humbly receive forgiveness we don't deserve than to walk in false humility cloaked in yesterday's shame. You know, I, I don't know how it happened, but at, at some point there was this lie that snuck into the church that taught us that we will be more approachable if we don't look like goody two-shoes. And so we had this fear of like pushing people away from being like too righteous. But the truth is this, is that being righteous is what people are attracted to. If you don't believe me, look at the life of Jesus. Being self-righteous is what people are repulsed by. See, I hear this all the time. We gotta go after it tonight. We're not the people who say, hey, look at us, we're broken just like everybody else. That's not good news. <laughs> that isn't. The good news hasn't settled in your heart if you're like, I'm broken just like everybody else. I'm just being honest, man. You're not supposed to remain broken. You're supposed to be his manifold wisdom in the world. We are designed to be what? His righteousness. So that when people see us, they're like, they're not broken anymore. How did you get that? Because when you got whole and when you got righteous, it didn't puff you up with pride. It made you more charitable. It made you more equitable. How? Oh, well, let me tell you, I didn't do anything to get this. I believed, I received, and I considered. God has designed you to be great, to be awesome. But you won't be great if you don't believe that you were designed to be great. I remember the first time I met one of our elders, Andoni. He's suffering for the Lord in Hawaii this week. Um, Still gone, Andoni. <laughs> um, I remember the first time I met him, it was a few years ago, and uh, he asked to get coffee with me, and I got coffee with him. He said, you know, every time you speak, it's like just fire comes out of your mouth. And I'm like, I knew you were from Bethel, but that's like the most Bethel thing you could ever say, okay? Um, and I was like, okay, thanks, man. That's okay, yeah, cool. And he just looked at me, and if you've ever talked with Andoni, he'll do this to you. He just looked at me and said, you didn't receive what I just said. And I was like, uh, well, no, I, I liked what you said, and it was nice of you to say that. And he said, no, you didn't receive it. 
And I said, yeah, well, it's kind of awkward because, you know, I don't want to get, like, too prideful. He's like, he looked at me and he said, you can't receive it because you don't love yourself like he loves you. And he said, if you don't receive the crown that I put on your head in this life, what will you have to throw at his feet in the next? <laughs> what? what did you just say? I'm like, doing the math. I'm like, crown in this life, his in the next. What? False humility is stealing God's people's destiny. And, and we have this fear of individuality. And we have this fear of, of self-indulgence. And so what we've done is we've said that the antidote to that is to put myself down. And we've put ourselves at odds with what God's will is in the world. What I want us to become as a church is a people of overflow instead of living from a deficit. There's um, this amazing story <laughs> that I, I, I heard once about a family back in the 1800s who they were making the trip from um, England to the United States on a boat. And as they were coming on the boat, they had saved up all of their um, money to purchase food for the long voyage. And they had just cheese and, and crackers with them. And so every night, cheese and crackers. Every night, cheese and crackers. And they, and they would look up and they could see the people who um, ha- had a bit more money than them and uh, were dressed nicer than them, getting ready to go to the banquet dinner every night on the ship. And uh, the dad and the mom got together and they said, you know, I think that this last night, before we land in, in the United States of America, I, I think what we should do is we should let's take a little bit of our money and let's go to the banquet. And so they said, okay, kids, here's what we're gonna do tonight. We're, we're, get dressed up, wear your best, we're gonna go up to the banquet. We're all tired of cheese and crackers. So they, so they make their way up uh, to the banquet and they come across the captain and they say, um, okay, so who do we pay? Like, how much, how much is it? And the captain looks at them and he says, pay? You didn't know the banquet was included in your fare when you purchased your ticket. Some of us, Jesus has purchased things for us, and we live eating cheese and crackers because we, we have not actually fully believed how much he's loved us. If you're gonna be the kind of person who overflows in life, you have to begin with believing that you're his righteousness on earth. Um, you know, we got to do this uh, Thanksgiving box uh, thing this last week, and it was just so much fun. Um, for those of you who brought your kids, thank you. you. You are teaching your kids what sacrificial love looks like. Um, it was just beautiful to see you there. Um, and it, it was just amazing. I mean, we got this, these boxes of food, and we got a couple addresses. It was uh, Jake and Becky and I and, and uh, Mike and Barbie, and we drove around, and it was just like Jesus' secret mission, like going around, and these people don't even know that we're coming to give them food, and we're like knocking on their door. It's like kind of awkward. They're like, who are you? What are you doing? We're like, hey, could you use this food? Would this be a blessing to you? And uh, we're, get, we're handing food out. It, it was just so much fun. And there was this one gal who went to her house, and um, we, we brought the food up to her, and she answers the door, and she's like, oh my gosh, heck yeah, I can totally use that. And so we just stood there, and, and we talked with her, and we heard about what's going on in her life, and, and we offered her not only food, but a listening ear. And, and then she told us, she said, we said, you know, is there anything that we can pray for you for? 
And she's like, oh, well, you know, I have this medical issue. And um, we're like, okay, let's pray for healing. She's like, well, I actually just kind of want the disability check to come in. Okay, well, we'll pray for that as well, you know. And so we're just like, we, we pray over her. And she's like, you know, I also really, while you're at it, I would really like this apartment next door. And she's like, okay, that's awesome. That's, that's a huge blessing. Let's pray that you get this apartment next door. And then we, we, some of us prophesied over her. We said, you know, I just see this in your life. You have this joy. I don't know if you follow Jesus, but there's just this joy about you. So she got prophesied over. And then as we were leaving, she, she mentioned that she had two sons. And just like without thinking Jake, our worship pastor, he, he's like, oh, well, I have some money. You, you, could you use this for buying Christmas presents? And she's like, just started crying. Oh, you have no idea. Yes, I could use this for buying their Christmas presents. And as I, I was driving home, I'm just on cloud. I'm exhilarated to see the church touch someone's life. Just beautiful. And I'm, I'm thinking about what's going on. And, I, and, and the Lord just says, what if your evangelistic strategy was abundance? See, sometimes our message to people is, you're a sinner, you need to change, change your mind, you're going to hell unless you, unless you do. What if our message to people was, here's some food, here's prayer for healing, here's some money, here's a prophetic word, this is all done in the name of Jesus. See, back in the Old Testament, at the very beginning, it says that Abraham was blessed so that he could be a blessing. And we actually still live, we don't live under the Mosaic Covenant anymore, but the Abrahamic Covenant still exists. And it's that we are blessed so that we can be a blessing. It's like jealousy evangelism. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, look at what they have. I want that too. Who do you, who's your father? Who do you know? I want us to be the kind of church that overflows in everything we do. And we will not overflow unless we begin with taking a hold of the identity the cross has accomplished for us, the righteousness of God. We, as a leadership team, we sense that revival is coming for Newburgh and the Willamette Valley, and that God is eagerly waiting to pour himself out on a people who will not disqualify themselves for what he has qualified them for. Let's be those people. Let's stand together and pray.